Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of 1 John and looking at just some basics of the Christian life and just going back to the basics of what, is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as we've looked, this is now our third week in this series that John is addressing a particular false teaching that is rampant, especially among these believers, and that false teaching is Gnosticism. And there are a lot of aspects to Gnosticism, but one thing that we're going to find in today's chapter in particular, is this idea of the Gnostics that there is a separation between the physical body and your spirit. And so in other words, the, the spirit is good, the flesh is evil, and so anything that you do in the flesh doesn't affect your spirit because the two are separated. And again, this is why they would teach that Jesus was simply a man and at his baptism, the spirit of Messiah came upon him, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit of the Messiah was taken from him. And so they have the separation, and you can understand the impact that would have on believers who are trying to follow Jesus if they have other people professing to be believers and saying, it doesn't matter if you sin, just do whatever you want. Because it's, anything you do in the body has no impact on your spirit. And so you can begin to see the impact that that might have. And so John begins uh, here in at the end of chapter 2, in verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so again, John is addressing the true evidence, the fruit that the Holy Spirit is truly present in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. And so he encourages them and says, abide in him. And we begin to see that this theme coming up in John. Now, as we head to the end of the second chapter, uh, whether it's the word abide or to practice or to keep on doing something. And so the word here, abide, again, we've seen that word come up before. It's to pitch a tent, to camp out there. Little children camp out, pitch a tent, abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence, literally a freedom in speaking, a freedom that, that doesn't have any sense of fear or condemnation, but knowing that we belong and not shrink from him at shame at his coming. And that would be a wonderful place to be, wouldn't it, to when Jesus comes to be able to stand before him and not be like, oh, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I'm welcomed here, but to know 
to know that I'm not perfect, but Jesus is my Savior, that Christ is in me, that I belong here in his presence. So when I see him again face to face, that will be a glorious day and not a day of shame or regret. In verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, again, we see this sense of an ongoing habit. The word is poieo, and it means to produce, and it's in the participle, which means this is a defining characteristic of your life. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why are we making this distinguishing statement that it's those who make a habit of practicing righteousness, those who regularly engage in righteous activity? Again, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work transforming our hearts. Because John has been making this distinguishing uh, comparison between those who are perpetually doing righteousness. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but they're perpetually engaging in righteousness. And yes, there may be occasional slip-ups and sins, but that's not the defining course of their lives. Compared to those who may do some righteous things, but the defining quality of their lives is engaging in unrighteousness. So John is making a distinction here that those who are truly children of God are going to become more and more like God. They're going to become more and more like Jesus. And so John is saying, look at their lives. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. It says this is an identifier that somebody is a child of God, that somebody is a follower of Jesus. Their life is increasingly becoming more like Jesus. And if somebody's life is not becoming more like Jesus, if they're going in the opposite direction, as would be the case with many of these Gnostics, John says, there's your red flag. Look for someone who is on a course of righteousness, somebody who's an imitator of God. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Would you take time this afternoon, tonight, sometime? Open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And just sit with that verse for a minute, or five, or ten. And allow that verse to just sink deeper. That the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, says, you're my child. How amazing is that? Not just, yes, I acknowledge you, I recognize your existence, but child. There's a huge difference between recognizing somebody's existence, even calling them a friend, as opposed to saying, you are my child. I have a lot of friends that I would sacrifice a lot for. But none of them come close to the two people that I call my children. Not even close. What I wouldn't do for them, the love that I have for them, is a love that's beyond anything I could have ever comprehended before I was a father. And to think that the God of the universe looks at us and says, you're my children. See the kind of love that the Father has for us, that we are his children. 
But then John goes on to explain, he says, the reason why the world does not know or understand us is that it did not know him. The world doesn't understand God. And so John is saying, look, don't be confused. Don't be surprised if the world doesn't get it because they don't understand God. And I remember when I was growing up, we had a lady in our neighborhood and she was one of the ladies who Halloween uh, wouldn't give out candy, but she gave out gospel tracts. And she was always talking to us about Jesus, and she was that Jesus freak in the neighborhood. But I realized that we just, it made no sense to me. For me, going to church, I didn't even consider what it meant to have a relationship with God. For me, it just meant she was really excited about church, and I didn't get that. Church to me was painful. That was the longest hour of my life, week after week after week. And I've shared the stories before that we'd sit the, I mean, everyone's got their pew. <clears throat> Don't point anybody out, but if that applies to you, I understand. It's, we've all got our pews, and we had our pew. And the person who had the pew in front of us, he was a bald fellow. And I would always wear a watch, not because I like wearing watches, but because I learned that the watch can reflect some light. And I would bounce the light off of the back of his head. And God's paid me back for that, I think. But... <laughs> it was horrible. And I kept thinking about this lady in our neighborhood, like, why? I mean, it's great and all, but why? I don't get it. I think John's acknowledging that, that if somebody doesn't know God, if they don't have a relationship with Christ, they just don't get it. It makes no sense to them. And so John says, don't be surprised. It doesn't understand you because it doesn't understand him. And so verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And the word we shall be like him means that we are finally gonna resemble him. Finally. In the midst of this life, when we are, we keep on growing, but we never reach perfection, when we finally see Jesus face to face, we are finally going to resemble him and be free from these bodies of sin. And so John is calling us to keep that focus on when we can see Jesus face to face. And before I knew Jesus, that really meant nothing because for me, everything in church, it was a a very high church and everything was high and lofty and there were pictures of a very somber, serious-looking Jesus and all of these fat baby angels just flying around him. And I, I thought about heaven as like, oh great, not only is an hour of church painful, but when you go to heaven, church lasts for eternity. Wow, that's just thrilling. I didn't understand that it's not about the fat baby angels. It's not about the streets of gold or the mansions in the sky. It's about being with Jesus. And as his children, that should excite us. We should long for that. When I have to go to a conference, I can't wait to come back to my family. Being in this world, to say, I can't wait to be with my Heavenly Father, to see Him face to face. And I love the encouragement that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
So again, as children of God, as followers of Jesus, God is doing a work in us, transforming us to the likeness of Jesus, and we are continually growing in that process. We are not perfect, and John acknowledges this. He said earlier, if you say that you don't have any sin, you're a liar, because we all do. But the sin doesn't define us. Again, he's countering the Gnostics who are infiltrating the church, saying, sin's no big deal, it's not even real, just do whatever you want, it, it doesn't affect your spirit. And John says, time out. Yeah, sin is a big deal. And as children of God, as followers of Jesus, we should be growing into greater Christ-likeness, not into greater and greater levels of sinfulness. Now, notice how Philippians 1.6 said that God began the work and God is the one completing it. So God is the one that's making us more like Jesus, but we do have a role to play. Verse 3, he says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As followers of Jesus, we can't simply sit back and say, okay, God is the one transforming me, so I just sit back and Lord, just do it. There's a both and. It's God working in us, but we also have a part to play in this. We have a part to play in, as we see in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That we have a role to play in saying, I don't want to make it easier for me to sin. I want to put up some safeguards in my life. And this becomes difficult. Because once we get involved in the purification process, we are prone to legalism. That's kind of our natural bent is to become legalistic about it. This was what the Pharisees did, remember. We kind of read the Gospels like the Pharisees were these horrible villains, and in a sense they were, but what the Pharisees were doing was trying to protect what was right. They were trying to protect obedience to the commands of God because they remember their history, how often Israel sinned against God, they were conquered by an enemy nation, taken into captivity, and the Pharisees said, no more. We are going to make sure that as a nation, we are faithful to the commands of God. And so not only were there the commands of God, but the Pharisees put a fence around that and said, here's some extra guidelines to keep us from sinning. Like me, if I were to go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, I'm not one of those people who would go there and like stand as close as they can to the edge. I'm standing about 100 yards away from the edge. The Pharisees said, let's just stay 100 yards away from disobeying God. Because we tried having just the commands and that wasn't enough, so let's, let's back that boundary up. And they started putting all these other restrictions around the people of Israel. And we can do the same thing too. We can have all these things built into our lives to say, they're just to help me obey, they're just to help me not to disobey the commands of God, but those become more important to us than the commands of God himself. But we still do have a role to play. Not in a legalistic sense, but a sense of saying, I have responsibility for my own spiritual growth. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit who transforms me, but I have a part to play. As I said last week, 
One of my mentors says the best illustration that our efforts are like sails on a boat. We have to raise the sails. It's the wind of the spirit that moves the, that blows into the sails and moves the ship, but we've got to put the sails up. If you put the sails up and there's no wind of the spirit, you're not going anywhere. We do have to put the wind, the, the sails up to catch the wind. We have a part to play in this process. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Again, a participle. It's a defining quality of their life. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay, notice those words again. Practices lawlessness. Keeps on sinning. Uses that statement twice. It's the defining quality of their life. It doesn't mean they never do anything good. But those good things are kind of the exception to the rule. And it doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we never sin. It means it's not the defining attribute of our lives. The defining quality of our lives is moving forward in Christ-likeness. Whereas for the Gnostics, there's a movement down the path of increasing lawlessness, discovering new ways to sin because, hey, it doesn't matter anyway. But notice there in verse 5 what he says of Jesus. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Literally to take upon oneself and move it. To get rid of it. So if Jesus came to take away sin, to do away with sin, those who love him and follow him, it stands to reason, would want to have less and less to do with sin. But if you don't know Christ and don't truly follow him, you don't really care. Not because you're earning your salvation, but because it's an evidence of your love for Jesus. Julie and I have been married for 25 years, coming up this September. If I knew that it annoyed her when I walk into the living room stand in the middle of the living room and just scream at the top of my lungs. That that bothered her. And she said, could you not do that, please? And I do it a second time. Okay, maybe I didn't understand. Maybe I thought she was just joking around with me. But if she repeatedly says, that bothers me, please don't do it. And I do it day after day after day after day for 25 years. I keep on doing it. What does that say about how I feel about her? If I just completely blow off the fact that what I'm doing is clearly bothering her. Now, I'm weird and I'm prone to do weird things. And so maybe I, I do good for a year. And then one day I walk in and I do it again. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I've just wasn't thinking, please forgive me. That's a lot different than deliberately walking in, knowing that it bothers her, and doing it over and over and over and over. This is the comparison that John is making. If you love Jesus and follow Jesus, to come in and say, I, I want to do what pleases him. I want to do what he likes. I don't want to do what is disobedient to him. I don't want to do what, what breaks his heart, what hurts him. Because again, the Gnostics don't think that sin's real, that it's any big deal. 
Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Again, this is simply examining the fruit of someone's life. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, it says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Fig trees are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Okay. Let's say I plant a tree. And it starts sprouting apples. And you come over and say, wow, I, I didn't know you had an apple tree. That's really nice. I say, it's an orange tree. I don't think so. Yep, it's an orange tree. Yep, definitely. It's an orange tree. Um, but those are apples. I can say until I'm blue in the face that what I planted was an orange tree, but unless it produces oranges, it's not an orange tree. John says we look at the evidence of our lives. Someone can say, yes, I follow Jesus. But if their life never produces any evidence of Jesus, it's not a Jesus tree. If someone says, I follow Jesus, and lo and behold, you start to see evidence of Jesus. Yeah, I think that's a Jesus tree. Then he goes on to say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Literally to undo it, to dissolve it, to do away with it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to obliterate the works of the devil. And the Gnostics are trying to find ways to keep on engaging in those activities. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. As a follower of Jesus, you've been set free. You've been set free from sin. You've been set free from sinful practices. You've been set free from the power of sin. And so John is saying, if you have been set free from sin and Jesus set you free, live like it. Demonstrate that in your life. And then verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He just kind of throws that last zinger in there. Notice what he says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, literally God's DNA, abides in him. I cannot deny that I am a cop, not a police officer, but I, uh, my maternal grandparents were the Kopchinskis, and they changed their name to avoid some kind of persecution, so they shortened it to cop. I cannot deny that I'm a cop, because if you look at me, and you look at my mother, and you look at my grandfather, and, and you look at a history of Kopchinskis, 
I have the Kopchinsky nose. My grandfather had this kind of head. So no matter how much I might try to fight against it, there are some natural things that are going to happen to me because I'm a Kopchinsky. Kopchinskis, men, women, whoever, have tree trunk legs. I can do whatever I want exercise-wise. I'm always going to have tree trunk legs. They're Kopchinsky legs. The family DNA shows up whether you want it to or not. Because it's in your DNA. John's saying you have the DNA of God in you through Christ. The family likeness should become evident. Whether you intend it to or not, the family likeness is going to appear. We have the family likeness of Jesus Christ. And John is saying for all those Gnostics who are false teachers among you, he said, he's saying here's a simple way to discern if they're genuine or not. Look for the family likeness. Look for the family likeness. Basically, all of these re repetitions John makes throughout this, these verses come down to the simple fact of if you have the family likeness of God, you're going to become more and more like Jesus. If you don't have the family likeness of God, if you don't have that DNA in you, it's going to be evident. Because the Gnostics could be really clever with their teaching. So John says, look at the life. Look at the fruit of their life. Look at the evidence of the family likeness. If it's not there. I mean, if I look nothing like a Kopchinsky. Now, my brother doesn't look like a Kopchinsky. He looks like a Yancha. Uh, if you trace my paternal ancestors, you can see that likeness coming up. If the family likeness isn't there, you can question a person's place in the family. John says, don't only examine the teaching, but also look at the life. Is there evidence of Christ in their life? Is there evidence of Christ in us? Do we let that family likeness shine through? Are we participating in the process creating space where Jesus can transform us, allowing the wind of the Spirit to take hold of us, which means more than just going through the motions, but truly following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't something that you do for three years and then you're, you're kind of at a level and you're good to go. We never stop growing. That likeness never stops being formed. Are we actively pursuing that family likeness? Let's pray. In this back to basics, really, uh, series that John covers, just some of the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. And again, as we've seen every week, that John is addressing believers who are facing the threat and challenge of a rising false teaching known as Gnosticism at the time. And again, there's three primary areas that John is trying to focus in on for these believers. Number one, true doctrine and what the truth of the gospel is. Number two, obedient living, what it means to faithfully live for Jesus Christ and follow him. And number three, fervent devotion, to not give up, to keep pressing on even when things are difficult. 
And this morning, he's going to take us through here in chapter 4, this delicate balance that's involved in following Jesus and living the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but airplanes terrify me. Um, it's, maybe it's a heights thing, but I think more than the heights, it's the falling uh, that I don't like about heights. And there's just something unsettling about this extremely heavy thing just floating up in the sky. And I try as best I can to not think about what's happening or what I'm doing at the time. But, and I, I don't fully know how airplanes do what they do, but I know this much, that a, a key component of a successful airplane is having two wings. If I were to be on an airplane and see us heading down the runway and look and notice that we only have a right wing, I would begin to frantically panic because I know that the left wing is really, really important too. And if there was a left wing and no right wing, then I'd be really afraid as well. Both wings are necessary. And John's going to walk us through this delicate balance of these two wings that are essential when it comes to following Jesus. And so the first thing we see in verses 1 through 6 is the balance of truth. The wing on the plane that represents the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John is admonishing these believers that whenever you hear somebody teaching, whenever you hear somebody bringing a word from the Lord, that there is a place for the believer to test that, to make sure that it's truly from God. I mean, you could come across anybody holding a Bible, uh, quoting the Bible, but the question is, what are they saying? Is it truly from God? I mean, if you look at how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in the Gospels, what was it that Satan used in order to launch his temptations against Jesus? Scripture. So Satan's quoting Scripture in order to get Jesus to sin. So there's a lot of verses. I remember once in college that we had to write a paper for philosophy, and the professor said, you're not allowed to quote Scripture. The point that you're trying to argue, argue without Scripture. And of course, we're like, well, this is Bible college. Well, I mean, don't quote the Scripture, said, because you can make Scripture say almost anything you want. So I want you first to make your argument, instead of taking cherry-picking some verses to make your point. And, and this is what is highlighted in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here comes the Apostle Paul, and he's preaching the gospel, and these Bereans say, that's nice, Paul, we know your reputation, but hang on a second. I don't usually lick my finger when I turn pages, I just did that for effect, and now I'm afraid to touch my page. I'll be okay. Paul preaches, and he teaches them. And they say, okay, well, let's, let's turn here, and let's, let's compare that with Scripture. I mean, the Apostle Paul, I mean, you figure you can trust what he's saying, but they said, well, in theory, yeah, we trust what he's saying, but we want to make sure that the things that he's saying are true. And so they test it to make sure that it aligns with the faithfulness of Scripture. And that's what John is encouraging these believers to do, to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, you might say, okay, how do you really know? You can compare it with Scripture, but what else? Well, John goes on in verse 2, 
By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So John says, again, he's addressing Gnosticism, which says that flesh is bad, spirit is good. And so therefore, the Messiah could not have had flesh because that would make the Messiah evil. Flesh is evil. And so, as we've said before, they believed that when Jesus was baptized, the spirit of Messiah came upon him. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified, the spirit of Messiah left. That Jesus, the true Messiah, cannot have flesh because flesh is evil and so john is saying hey here's one really quick way to tell if the person that you're listening to is truly from god or not and that is what are they saying about jesus what are they saying about jesus that's pretty good advice even today what are they saying about jesus because there are a lot of movements out there and they use a lot of vocabulary that sounds right and it sounds true, but it, look underneath the surface and ask the question, what are they saying about Jesus? Bottom line. Which it amazes me that John says this because he leaves a lot of other stuff out. John doesn't say, listen to what they say about Jesus and Listen to what they say about the end times and the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium and listen to what they say about how to be baptized or listen to what they say about healing or not healing or charismatic gifts or not charismatic gifts. There's all of these secondary and third level points of doctrine that John says, don't, don't get caught up in those. The question, what are they saying about Jesus? What are they proclaiming about Jesus? Verse 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I love that John turns his focus here to say this. Because in giving these admonitions about be careful about the false teachers. You know, there's a spirit of Antichrist behind these false teachers. It can almost create the sense among these believers of playing defense. Of just hunkering down. Now, if you follow sports, you know that one of the worst things a football team can do is play prevent defense. The idea of a prevent defense is I don't care what the offense does, we just don't want them to score. And inevitably, what happens with the prevent defense is you let them score. And John is saying, don't be like that. Don't live with this constant fear of these false teachers. Don't live in fear of the world and, and the threat that is posed by the world because look what he says, you have overcome the world. The spirit that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As followers of Jesus, we don't have to live in fear of the culture that's around us and that can be easy to fall into. We can see a rise of things that go against the, the very core of who we are as Jesus followers and almost be tempted to live in this, oh no, we just need to hang in there. But John says, the spirit of God in you is greater than the spirit of the world. Don't live in fear because there's false teachers. Don't live in fear because there's evil because the spirit of Christ is within you. 
And that's greater than what's in the world. And so he's encouraging them to continue on in obedience to Christ. Verse 5, it says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If people are looking at the gospel from a worldly perspective, they're going to find all kinds of objections to it. And so John is saying, look, if, if the person teaching you has some weird teachings about who Jesus is, wants nothing to do with whatever you're trying to say, there's concern there. And there's an easy way to identify. You know, it's so amazing when you meet another Jesus follower because if maybe you're at a concert or just at some event and there's an instant kinship because you know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And John's affirming that that should be the case. If that's not the case, there's something wrong. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So even as Paul addresses the Thessalonians, he says there are people who are going to refuse and deny and want nothing to do with the truth. Expect it. Years ago when I worked at a bookstore, there were three of us in managerial positions and it, we were just getting overwhelmed with just some of the frustrations of working retail. And the three of us had a brilliant idea. You may disagree with it, but our, our conclusion was embrace the madness. You know, stop coming into work expecting all the customers to be polite and everything to go well. Just come in and realize that it, it's going to be chaos. And just come to grips with that. There are some, as you share Jesus, who will want nothing to do with it. We can be shocked and hurt and offended and kind of live on the defensive. Paul told the Thessalonians, it's there. There are some who don't want the truth, want nothing to do with the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth has an eternal impact. Jesus is the truth. Again, I've shared the story before, but I remember sharing the gospel with this college student at a laundromat, and I was with another leader from the church, and we were going through, and they were like, yeah, yeah, this sounds great, this sounds great. And so he said, do you want to receive Jesus in your life? And at that point, they said, No. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. They like the thought of going to heaven. They like the thought of not having to go to hell. But they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Truth is an essential wing of the plane. And these believers in 1 John are being admonished to keep that wing of truth firmly in place. To don't to never, to don't, to never compromise the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the midst of being surrounded by people who want nothing to do with truth, in the midst of being surrounded by false teachers who are preaching a, a deviation of who Jesus is, 
He says, keep the wing of truth firmly in place. Keep the balance of truth in place because it matters for eternity. But he continues with the second part. The second wing of the plane of verse 7, the balance of love. The balance of love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So I think John is maybe recognizing that if all you focus on is truth, you can kind of become a jerk. And so he says, in the midst of holding firm to truth, don't forget the other wing of the plane, which is love. Because God is love, and whoever knows God is going to love, because love is the core part of who God is. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, it says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. We can take this book, we can study this book inside and out, we can know everything there is to know about this book, but Paul tells the Corinthians, if you don't have love, you're worthless. But, but I know everything about this book. Paul says, where's the love? And I think John echoes that sentiment here in chapter 4 of saying, look, hold to the truth. Don't compromise the truth. But in holding firm to the truth, don't compromise love. Because there's a delicate balance that's necessary. In verse 9, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is made is perfected in us. Notice what he's saying in verse 12. Nobody has ever seen God. Nobody. But look what the, the point that he makes there. If we love each other, God's love is made complete in that. God's love is perfected when we love each other. In other words, he's saying God's love is made tangible. God is made visible to the world when they look and see the love we have for one another. So yes, hold to the truth, but do not forsake love. Because just like truth has eternal consequences, love has eternal consequences. He continues in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think he's being pretty strong in his language. We must love one another. If we want this plane to take flight, if we want this gospel plane to be in the air, we need truth and we need love, both equally vitally important, never compromising one or the other for the sake of the other. Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Think about it this way. I always have a thing of mints up here on the pulpit because preaching breath isn't very nice, and not that you would notice because of the masks, but it's a habit. After you're, you're done preaching, yeah. hopefully you never experience it. If you do, say, you've got them on your pulpit, use them. But you could do it in one of two ways. You could come up to me after service, and we're, you know, we're past having to wear masks, and you could say, Paul, do you still have those mints on, on your pulpit? I, do you think I could have one? And, you know, to, you could probably use one too, to be honest. Okay, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Or you can walk up and be like, oh, Paul, did you swallow a rat? That is rancid. Yikes. Was it true? Very probable, yeah. Was it loving? Not so much. Speak the truth in love. Never compromising one for the other. And we have the perfect demonstration of this in the person of Jesus Christ, who never once compromised truth for the sake of love, but he never compromised love for the sake of truth. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures is in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, just pause there for a second. Why did they think that this was going to trip Jesus up? Because they knew, I would argue, there was no way Jesus was going to give them the go-ahead to stone this woman. They had seen too much of him, heard too much of him to know that there's no way he's going to stand back and say, throw away. She deserves it. Let her have it. So they want to see how he reacts. Will he compromise truth for the sake of love? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I wish we knew what he wrote. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And I wish he told us what he wrote. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, 
let that image sink in for a second. He's got all these religious leaders saying, here's a woman caught in the act of adultery. Okay, yes, the question is, where's the dude? Because it takes two to tango. He's not there. One by one, all these religious leaders start walking away. Until there's only two people left at the end of this account. Can we recognize that? It's just Jesus and the woman. There's nobody else left. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus never once felt that it was important to emphasize, yes, this is sin. He infers it by saying, okay, yeah, I get it. Sin deserves punishment. But before you start throwing your stones, what did God have Jesus write in the ground? I don't know. I do know the last time God wrote something with his finger, it was the Ten Commandments. I wonder if Jesus bends down and begins to write out those commandments. And as he writes them out with his finger, the older ones begin to recognize, love the Lord with all your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, I'm not sure I've kept that one. Show no other gods before me. guilty there too and one by one because we've heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount take the Ten Commandments and twist them deeper into our hearts and so when he gets to that one you shall not commit adultery maybe there's a connection in their minds oh yeah remember that time he said that if you even look with lust that's the same as committing adultery in your heart all of a sudden Everyone in that vicinity recognizing they're not a whole lot different than the woman they dragged before Jesus. And so they all walk away. And now that everybody's gone, it's just Jesus and the woman. The first thing he says to her is not knock it off with the sin. The first thing he says to her is, I don't condemn you either. But... truth but there's clearly love and at all points in his life Jesus never once abandoned one for the sake of the other but in every turn takes both of them in perfect delicate balance keeping in mind Romans chapter 2 verse 4 this verse hit me like a ton of bricks years ago or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I used to think that if I just pounded on the sin issue hard enough, people would eventually cave in, and all I noticed was it seemed to harden them. And then I came on Romans 2, 4, probably for the 200th time. Oh, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the father in the story of the prodigal son patiently waiting for his son to come home. 
And when he does, instead of scolding him and punishing him, wraps his arms around him. If we have love without truth, we say God is love and so that's all that matters and, and we don't care about truth, you get this nice big word called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a fancy way of saying there is no law, there are no rules, everything goes, and you have chaos. Do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. Nothing matters. This is dangerous. But if you have truth without love, you have legalism, which is also dangerous. John is urging these believers in the midst of being on guard against false teaching, make sure you keep them both. Keep both wings on the plane at all times. Never compromise truth for the sake of love, but never compromise love for the sake of truth. Just like Jesus, who never compromised one for the sake of the other. As we look at our own hearts and how we treat those around us, how we respond to the world and the way things are going in the world, even how we respond to a rise of false teaching about who Jesus is. Do we just say, well, we just got to love and let's not worry about truth? Do we say, we got to stand for truth and throw love out the window? Or do we say truth and love together at all times? And the power of the Holy Spirit to never compromise one for the sake of the other. Is there a tendency in your heart? Do you find that your heart tends to gravitate toward love and kind of compromise a bit on the truth? Is there a way that God wants to work in you in that area? Do you find yourself one who says, we need to stand for the truth and who cares if we stomp over people in the process? Is there a way that God wants to speak to you in the middle of that? That we can be a people who look like Jesus in delicately balancing truth and love at all times with all people. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer, you know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope. To learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.